Turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, again to uh, the epistle to the Hebrews, this sermon-like letter, letter-like sermon, whichever you prefer. Again to Hebrews and uh, chapter 9 this week. Last two weeks we've taken whole chapters of Hebrews uh, at a chunk. We did all of Hebrews chapter 7. Last week we did all of Hebrews chapter 8. This week we are not doing that. This week we are only going to be looking at the first 10 verses of Hebrews chapter 9. In chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is going to, going to wrap up, he's going to sum up, or at least you know work in that direction, this, uh, this point he's been making about the priesthood of Jesus and this explanation of the priestly work that Jesus does on behalf of those who, um, uh, who follow him by faith. And so, uh, so that's where we're headed, just so you know. By about chapter 10, verse 18, he will have concluded this argument. It is a long argument. Uh, the, the point that he is making about Jesus' priestly ministry began all the way back in Hebrews chapter 4. And it extends through Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, in some ways, it's difficult to break up these several chapters into different sermons because the author is making one kind of large point step by step by step. And, uh, and yet, all the same, there's a lot in there for us to, uh, to look at and to glean from and to be changed by. Uh, it's been almost three years now since uh, my wife and I bought the house that we're currently living in. And when you buy a 40-year-old house... Uh, you not only buy a very long to-do list, but you also uh, buy other people's problems. Anybody's ever owned a house that's been lived in or owned by at least a couple people before you, you know that eventually you'll, you'll want to go change something in the house, remodel something, paint a wall, patch a hole, whatever the case is. And, and in doing so, you will uncover the mistakes and the choices of the people that lived there before you. For instance... We were recently uh, painting uh, our bedroom and, and, and our bathroom, and there were some spots and some drywall that I wanted to fix that were uh, just not, not in great shape, so I was patching some drywall, and in patching the drywall, which by the way, I know I talked about doing breaks a few weeks ago, I'm talking about patching drywall today, I am not soliciting my, my services to you, okay? Trust me, you don't want them. But I was patching some drywall, and in so doing, I had to sand down uh, uh, some of the, the wall above the, the patch where I was, um, where I was putting in some, some fresh sheetrock uh, so that you could you know, mud and tape over it and make the seam look nice and everything. And as I'm sanding through white paint, I'm finding all these orange spots. I'm like, what are these orange spots? I keep sanding, and I find, and there's a couple other patches. I'm, I'm finding these orange spots all over, and I realize somebody before us painted the bathroom orange. I don't know why. I wouldn't have done it that way. And obviously, whoever came, somebody at some point d- decided that that was not a good choice either, and they painted over it with white again. And so as I'm sanding through white, I'm finding orange. It was very strange. But this is the point. In your, if you're in a place very long, it doesn't take a whole lot to see uh, wh- wh- what has been behind, what has come before you, those layers of paint that are revealed as you sand away things, things that other people tried to cover up to freshen a room or to brighten things, covering up the choices of another person or maybe even choices that they made in the past that later decided were not so good. Here in Hebrews chapter 9, the author of Hebrews is continuing speaking about that priestly work of Jesus. And he's going to liken the priestly work of Jesus to the priestly work that the priests did in the temple, particularly to atone for sin. He's going to make some connections to the old covenant again, that old sacrificial system of receiving forgiveness for sins. 
And what he's showing us in chapter 9 is that so long as people try to enter God's presence through the Old Covenant, they will be prevented from doing so because the Old Covenant is insufficient for perfecting the conscience. The Old Covenant is only good for covering up old sins. The main idea that we'll see in these verses this morning, Hebrews 9 verses 1 through 10, is this, that you can't fix sin with a fresh coat of paint. Eventually, it will be uncovered. Eventually, there will be a need to cover it over again. Even the fresh coat that you put over will get dirty, will get soiled, will need to be covered once more. You need more than just a fresh coat of paint that will be revealed by the work of others, maybe later on in our life or by time. We need a complete heart renovation. You can't fix sin with a fresh coat of paint. As we come to God's Word this morning, I hope that we would come to understand how the old covenant, that old sacrificial covenant, communicated the inapproachability of God and His holiness. God is holy, and in His holiness, on our own, we are not able to approach Him. We will also see the ineffectiveness of the old covenant to ultimately bring people to God. I would hope that we would see see our need as the author leads us our need for a clean conscience. Not just better patterns of living, not just a fresh coat on my life, not just a new start today, but a clean conscience, a a total renovation, tearing it down to the studs and starting over again. Would you stand with me as we honor God by reading His Word? Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. The author of Hebrews says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which there were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having been thus made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. You can't fix sin with a fresh coat of paint. And the old covenant practices, the old covenant that the Jews had come to know, that the Hebrews previously dealt with prior to coming to faith in Christ, the, those old covenant practices that these Hebrews are tempted to maybe return to as part of their worship, are ultimately insufficient. They ultimately only cover over sin. You cannot give a clean conscience as they really need. You can't fix sin with a fresh coat of paint. In verses 1 through 7 of this text this morning, our author Uh, reminds his readers and us today of the pattern of the Old Covenant. The pattern of the Old Covenant. And in these verses, uh, he is uh, describing what what, what kind of the Old Covenant worship layout looked like. Now, at the end of chapter 8, verse 13, you'll remember he said, 
that in speaking of a new covenant, uh, recalling Jeremiah 31, God makes the first covenant obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So now he describes this old thing that is ready to vanish away. He uh, refers for us, or, or alludes to, reminds us of the layout of the temple. Really, ultimately, the layout of the tabernacle. He calls it a tent in verse 2. This was the tent that was erected by the Israelites after the Exodus. God gave instruction to Moses, and Moses uh, uh, guided and oversaw the construction of this tent where sacrifices would be made and offered for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. And the author reminds us of the basic layout of this uh, of this tabernacle system. Now, some of your study Bibles uh, may have a picture of the tabernacle, maybe around Exodus 25 or so, or maybe you have a map of that or something in the back of your Bible. Uh, you can certainly do a Google image search and see what the tabernacle looked like, but it was essentially like this. Uh, outside or, or in, encircling the, uh, the court of the tabernacle was just a, a tent uh, or, or, excuse me, a, a wall made of, uh, made of curtains. And then inside of that wall, the opening which was facing east, was a, a structure. Uh, it was a tent made of wool and leather and other things that they called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle had essentially two different rooms. The first room was uh, about twice the size in length of the second room, uh, and, and everything was the same width all the way along. The first room was called the holy place. And in that first room, only the priests and Levites could enter. So you had to be from the line of Levi, and you had to be a priest in order to enter into that first section. Now, inside that uh, inside that first section of the tent, that holy place, was a table for showbread. Uh, the showbread was kind of an, um, um, it was just loaves of bread that were laid out before the Lord as a uh, kind of just a show of thanksgiving. The priests and Levites would eat that bread. There was also in there a lampstand, a candelabra of sorts with several wicks that were, that were lit. There was an altar of incense there, though the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 9 puts the altar of incense inside the second room. Uh, scripture in the Old Testament seems to say it was in the first room, and this doesn't mean that the author of Hebrews got it wrong. Uh, there's a lot of connection between incense and offering incense and the work that's done in the inner room that I think the author of Hebrews is kind of conflating. The, uh, there's even some uh, passage in Leviticus that seems to say that the altar of incense may have moved from, out, from outside the second room to inside the second room. Not a big deal. But there's an altar of incense there that would be lit and smoke would be offered up uh, there as the incense was burning prior to making sacrifices to the Lord. And then between the first room and the second room, many of you know there was a very thick curtain. The curtain was woven with red and blue and purple yarn. On it were woven with uh, gold thread cherubim. Cherubim are not these cute little uh, fat chubby angels with uh, tiny wings uh, undersized for their bodies. Cherubim are these uh, heavenly spiritual creatures that that seem to, in, in many depictions, have like the body of a lion and the face of a man. They are imposing figures. There were cherubim sewn into, embroidered into this curtain. Already maybe you might be thinking back to Genesis chapter 3 when God expels Adam and Eve from the garden after their sin and he places in front of the entrance to the garden, he places cherubim to guard it. So there are cherubim guarding the most holy place of the temple. 
then behind this thick curtain was the most holy place, or as we often commonly call it, the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies, which is this perfectly square room, was the Ark of the Covenant. This is this box that's overlaid with gold. And, and the author of Hebrews mentioned several things, sort of uh, mementos, if you will, of the faith journey of the people of Israel that are inside of it. The Ark of the Covenant, overlaid with gold, had a solid gold lid, and on top of the lid were more cherubim, uh, more of these uh, spiritual beings who guard the throne room and the presence of God standing on top of uh, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which was called the mercy seat. And it was on the mercy seat that we'll see in a moment. The priests would sprinkle blood for the atonement of sins. And there between the cherubim where God would manifest his presence with the high priest once a year there to meet with them. All of the tabernacle structure, these different phases, the court where only the Israelites can go. The first room where only the priests and Levites can go. The, the second room, the most holy place where only the high priest can go and one day a year is a picture of the way that God has met with people before. If you were to go back to Exodus chapter 19, you would see there as Israel came to Mount Sinai after being delivered from Exodus, uh, you see these what I would call gradations of holiness. The inapproachability of God by just anybody is on display in the temple and tabernacle structure and also on display at Mount Sinai before the tabernacle was ever built. You recall what happened there in uh, Exodus chapter 19. As God calls the people to himself and he prepares to give to Moses the law, the people of Israel gather around the base of the mountain, don't they? And then the priests and the Levites go halfway up the mountain. And then Moses himself all alone, goes to the summit of the mountain to meet with God in thick cloud with rumblings of thunder and lightning. See that same thing on display horizontally in the tabernacle as only certain people are able to approach God in His holiness. That's the layout of the temple. And then from there, in uh, verse 6, 6 and 7, the author reminds the people of uh, not just the layout of the tabernacle, but the sacrifices that would take, there, that take place there, the practices that took place uh, under the Old Covenant in the tabernacle. Here he's referring specifically to a day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the Day of Covering, Covering of Sins. Interestingly enough, in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur begins today at sundown and extends through tomorrow at sundown as well. If you have Jewish friends, you may want to let them know that you're praying for them on this one of their most holy days and a day of repentance uh, before God for them. On the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, here's what would take place. The high priest, who's, only able to go, who's the only one who's able to go into the most holy place, and only one day a year on Yom Kippur, he would, prior to going into that room offer a bull as a sacrifice for his own sins and, he, and for the sins of his family. And then he would take two goats, and one of the goats he would sacrifice for the, for the unintentional sins, as Hebrews chapter 9, verse 7 says, the unintentional, the, the unperceived, the sins of omission of the people of Israel. We see here that the problem of having a sinful nature is that people can sin without even being aware of it. We can transgress God's perfect holiness. We can sin against His perfect righteousness by failing to do what is right simply because we're unable to see what is right to do. Even these sins of omission, even these unintentional sins need atonement. And that's what the Day of Atonement was for. That's what Yom Kippur was for. Giving atonement, giving a covering for the sins 
the unintentional sins of the people. Now, there was a whole other sacrificial uh, uh, protocol for the known sins of the people. So when you sin and you, you're aware of it, you're immediately to go to the priest and offer a sacrifice. But the Day of Atonement is for the sins that you didn't commit and you didn't even know you committed because in your sinfulness you were blind to it. So the priest would offer a bull for his own sins. He would, uh, he would slaughter a goat for the sins of the people. He would go into the holy place, into that first room, and he would light incense there on that altar of incense. The smoke would fill that room and fill the uh, most holy place as well. And then he would go behind that thick curtain into the most holy place where only he can go. And he would take the blood of the bull and the blood of that goat, the, the, the blood of the animal that was substituted for his sins and the blood of the animal that was substituted for the sins of the people. And he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat on top of the uh, Ark of the Covenant where the two cherubim were. And in so doing and offering this sacrifice for the sins of the people with a repentant heart, God would look upon that sacrifice and he would look over, he would pass over, he would see the death of those animals as a covering for the sins of the people. After offering atonement, he would go back outside of the tent with the rest of the priests and the Levites and congregation of Israel, and he would lay his hands on the goat, the other goat that was still living. Remember, he took two, he only killed one. And as he laid his hands on the head of the goat, he would confess the sins of the people on the goat as a sort of symbolic transfer of sin. This goat was called the scapegoat, and that goat they would slap on the rear and send off into the wilderness, taking the sins of the people far away from them. The purpose of all of this, the pattern of the old covenant, done year after year, is done to make atonement. The Hebrew word for atonement is the Hebrew word kafar, and it means to cover over. It's the word that, we, uh, that, that, that is, uh, is used in Yom Kippur, day of atonement, day of covering. The pattern of the old covenant was in place to cover over the sins of the people. The author of Hebrews is reminding us of this which immediately leads to the problem and the limits of the Old Covenant. This is a pattern of the Old Covenant, but there, there are limits, there are problems. If all you're doing is painting over, covering over the sins of the people, you've got a problem. Verses 8 through 10 highlight for us the limits of the Old Covenant. This is how far the Old Covenant could go and no further. Verse 8 states that the Holy Spirit, this is interesting, right? After talking about the temple layout and the practice of the priests, the author says, by this... The Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. The Holy Spirit is somehow speaking, revealing truth to God's people through old covenant worship. The Holy Spirit is teaching the people of Israel and these Hebrews who are Jewish background believers in Christ, teaching them about the limits of the old covenant and worship in the temple. And what the Holy Spirit is saying through this pattern of worship is that free and regular access to the presence of God is impossible so long as the various barriers to the presence of God in the temple remain in place. As long as people continue worshiping in the temple, which is not really even in the temple, it's just like in the courtyard for the common person, never able to go into the holy place, never able unless you're the high priest, and that only one time a year to go in the most holy place. Access to the presence of God is, in, is insanely limited. It is nearly impossible so long as that pattern of worship remains standing. The holy places that are blocked off in the temple are indicative of the true holy place where Christ has gone as our great high priest. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 19 through 20. We saw this a few weeks ago. 
speak about a sure and steadfast anchor of our hope that is behind the veil, behind the curtain. The imagery is on purpose. It's behind that curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place. Our hope exists. Our hope is steadfast and sure. It is anchored in the presence of God because Christ has gone there before us. But as long as the general temple structure which was still standing in the day that the author wrote to these Hebrews. These, these people are reading this in a day where they can still go to Jerusalem and see the temple in its place. As long as that temple structure still stood, and as long as people still were still trying to worship God that way, there was no access to the most holy place in the earthly sense. There was no access to the Holy of Holies, except for the high priest and that once a year. Now, as we said, at the time of the writing of Hebrews, the temple was still standing and offerings were still being presented there. In light of the new covenant, though, in Christ, the old covenant rituals stand as a reminder and a symbol that so long as there's a need for sacrifices for sins, that there's no way that the conscience can ever be cleansed. If year after year you're having to paint over the sins of the previous year, then year after year you're just reminded of all the other sins that are underneath all those coats of paint. It's a picture of the futility of those who continue to worship without a clean conscience. The very promise of the new covenant that God would, as he said in Jeremiah 31, 34, remember their sins no more. That covenant, the promise of a new covenant, points to a day where animal sacrifices would no longer be necessary. Where people could worship God with a clear conscience without having to worry about sins that they committed that they don't even know that they committed because in their sinful hearts they're just blinded to it. In this picture, we have a glimpse into the hard situation for the Hebrews. Here we need to try to get into their minds a little bit. These are people who have worshipped their whole lives under the old covenant until Christ has come. And they're living in a day as Christians, but as Jews also, who, who are living in the shadow of the temple, literally, where sacrifices are still happening in the temple. And the author of Hebrews is telling them, don't do that anymore. You see how difficult that would be to to say no, to stop doing, to stop worshiping the God, God the way that his law had commanded in light of this new covenant thing? You see how difficult that transition would be for them? Nevertheless, they're being encouraged to leave behind this old covenant, to embrace a new one. When the structures, a new covenant where the structures and the, uh, in a day where the structures and functions of the old covenant were still going on, Though the temple was still functioning, the old covenant had no standing with God. Because he's brought a new covenant, the old one is old, it's obsolete, it's gone away. But if the old covenant maintains standing, not just the temple continues to stand, but if the old covenant maintains validity in the hearts of the Hebrews, then they themselves have no hope of entering the holy places where Jesus has already gone, where he's gone to anchor the Christian's hope in the very throne room of God. As Christians, to worship according to the Old Covenant, they are stuck in a futile, pointless feedback loop where they can never really experience the freedom from sin and confidence before God that they have in Christ. And in the same way, so long as people worship according to the Old Covenant, there's no hope to be able to enter the heavenly presence of God. The explicit limit of the Old Covenant, it's limited, it only only do so much, and God designed it this way, comes to us in verses 9 through 10. We see this, verses 9 through 10 say the temple is uh, symbolic for the present age where there's, there's a new covenant in existence, but old covenant stuff that's still happening. 
According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. The limit of the Old, old Covenant is this, that that sacrificial system could only deal with ritual cleansing. It could only offer a fresh coat of paint. But sin was still a problem of the conscience of the people. Even though their sins are being atoned for on Yom Kippur, they are still aware of those sins. They, they still have a consciousness of those sins and a consciousness that leads them right, to, to feel the weight of that sin and the, the separation that it brings between them and God. As we said, the Old Covenant was only ever meant to cover over sin temporarily, year to year, but not to remove it permanently, not to remove it from the conscience of the people. The truth is this, we are constantly aware of our need to clear our conscience. We are constantly aware of the sins in our our past, the sins that we have committed, things that we are responsible for. And there are many world religions and worldviews that would have you believe that you can clear your conscience. You can have a clean conscience today by intentionally doing good things to counteract the bad things that you've done. The only problem with these worldviews and these world religions that say just do more good stuff than bad stuff and you won't have a problem with God is that you'll always be aware of the wicked things that you've done. No matter how, good, how, how much good you do, you'll always be aware of the bad stuff. And you'll regularly be curious about whether you've sinned in any way that you didn't know of. I know how wicked I was on purpose, but my goodness, what, what might have I overlooked? And I know what good things I've done to, 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 to counteract the bad things that I know that I've done, but what about all the other bad things that I'm not aware that I did? What about those, insult, the, 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 those insults that I threw at other people that I didn't even know were insulting? What about the things that I stole, the time that I stole from my, my, my work, my place of employment? What about you know, things that I took from other people that, that didn't rightly belong to them? What about that $20 bill that I picked up on the floor at Costco that belonged to the elderly woman in front of me and I didn't even bother to ask if it belonged to her? Have I done enough good things to make up for that? In a system like this, where we just try to clear our conscience by doing more good things than bad things, There is really no certain way of knowing if you've ever done enough good to overcome your evil. This is a problem of the Old Covenant. It was a designed problem. God designed the Old Covenant with a a flaw on purpose to remind the people that their sins were always before them. And what they needed was not just to cover over their sins, but to have the guilt of their sin completely removed from them to have their conscience cleansed. And so this is the question that lies before us today, church. How will your conscience be cleansed? How will you do away with the guilt that you carry for sin? What can you do to make sure that there is nothing between you and God and that you can enter with confidence into His very presence? How will your sins be atoned? The answer from the verses that follow in Hebrews chapter 9, we'll look at more next week, answer that question this way. They say in Hebrews 9, verses 13 and 14, If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ 
who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How will your conscience be cleansed? The answer to us in Scripture is this way, through Christ. Not through an animal sacrificed for your sins, not, for an, not, not, not by an animal who dies in your place, but through the only holy, sinless, divine, human Son of God who gave that life, that holy, righteous, perfect life in your place on the cross. In your place as, as the offering sacrificed, prepared, offered to God, presented to Him for you. Hear what Scripture says about what happens when you're, to your sin when Jesus is your high priest, when Jesus is not just the one who mediates between you and God, but when Jesus is the one who, who, who God looks upon as the one sacrificed for your sins. In Colossians 2, 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Friend, if you are seeking to cleanse your conscience, to live without guilt, to live without the weight of your sin by just doing good things, you will find yourself in a pointless loop, a pointless cycle of never knowing if you've done enough. And the reality is, the, the, the reason that you're, you're wondering, can I ever do enough? Have I ever done enough to overcome the bad thing? The reality is that the, the, the answer is no. You have not done enough and you cannot do enough. But the point is, of Scripture, not what you can do to clean, cleanse your conscience, but what Christ has done for your conscience to be cleansed. He's the one who stands in your place, who receives the full penalty for your sin in himself. He's the one who died on the cross for your sins, because of your sins and for the forgiveness of your sins. He is the one who is raised from the dead as the one who is victorious, divinely victorious over sin and death in your place, so that if your faith is in him, your sin is gone. Now, does that mean that you'll never continue to to struggle with sin in your life? Of course not. As long as we live in these bodies of flesh, we will struggle with the sinful nature that lives within us. And we need the help of God and we need the help of each other to press through that, to press towards sanctification. But if you are in Christ, you do not bear any guilt for your sin. You do not stand in the place of the defendant in the divine courtroom of God. Christ has taken your place there. And not only has he taken your place, but he has taken your verdict. The penalty has been paid. And if you are in Christ, your conscience has been cleansed. Friend, do you need a clean conscience? Are you here today struggling with the weight of sin in your life, the weight of disobedience against God, the weight of pain that you've inflicted upon others, feeling like you can never get past it, like you can never get over it, like you can never move beyond it, like you can never be right with God or right with the people that that you have hurt? Have your conscience cleansed by coming to Jesus, the one who died for your sins, the inaugurator of a new covenant, a new covenant that, that not just covers over sins, but has the power to remove the guilt of sin from you entirely. Friend, if you need to make a decision to follow Christ this way, to trust him this way, if you just have questions about what it means to know Jesus, to be free of the guilt of sin, to to live a life of, of holiness by God's help, 
then please meet with me after our service today. I'll just be standing outside to greet us as, as we dismiss. But man, don't let today go by without having those questions answered, without coming face to face with Christ who saved you, without having your conscience cleansed. Come speak with me. Please don't delay. Christian, the reality of Christ's death for us, the cleansing of our conscience, has application for us, not not, not just with how we relate to God. Now we can relate to God freely. Now we can go to God without, without anything between us and Him. We can go to Him with confidence because Christ has gone there before us. And if we're in Christ, we are in the presence of God. It also has application for how we deal with each other. If your conscience is cleansed because Christ has forgiven you, You who know real grace, you who know real forgiveness can offer it to others and can be an agent, can be a minister, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, a minister of reconciliation. You who have been made right with God have now the capacity and the help of God to bring other people together who previously were defrauded, were were at conflict with each other. You, because you know the source of true forgiveness, you, because you know the the freedom of a clean conscience before God, can offer and lead and guide others to know the same sort of forgiveness. Dear friends, the depth of our sin requires a deeper solution. A mere covering will not do. What we need is a full and total renovation of the heart. The problem of sin needs more than just a fresh cone of paint. It needs a total heart renovation. And this we have in Jesus. Stripped down to the studs, rebuilt in holiness. We have new life in Him. Freedom from the guilt of sin. Embrace it today. Live in light of it. Pray that God would make you a a minister of reconciliation to those who need it as well. Let us pray that God would help us to do so.